I'm Christina Jurekides, and we're committed to making the seemingly impossible possible. We stand at the intersection of the values of humanity with the value of technology. Inspire for Impact, the podcast, is a place where we have conversations with inspirational entrepreneurs, community leaders, and representatives of organisations who are boldly creating a future by design. The good, the bad, the warts, and the inspiration. We're leading the way to be the change we want to see in the world. Conversations that bring to light the magic that is happening on a daily basis all over the globe. Welcome everyone to another episode of Inspired for Impact. It is my absolute pleasure to introduce to you today Denise Duffield-Thomas, who is a self-made millionaire and a business mentor, lives down the road. So I'm so excited to be actually uh, having a podcast with somebody from my hometown, which is Newcastle. And Denise, how we usually start this is by saying your bio, everything's going to be in the notes. Can you tell our listeners something about you that they won't find out if they stalk you? I'm obsessed with the musical Hamilton. I probably listen to it every day in some way, either in my car or whatever. I listen to a fan podcast called the Hamilcast about Hamilton. I've seen it five times. And I think I feel like I don't post it on social because then it would just, I would just turn my business into a Hamilton business. I knew knew there was another point of connection. I've seen it only three times have it playing incessantly. I've watched it on Disney Channel so many times. I've never learned so much about American history as I have through that. But the oh, love it. Perfect. That's wonderful, wonderful. We could honestly do this whole, I actually have done an episode podcast recently where we talked about Hamilton because there are so many lessons and parallels to, to business and um, money and oh so many things but yeah I as I said I don't put it on my socials because then I would open the floodgates I think I love it and anytime that you want to reference Hamilton as an example as we go through this podcast please feel free to do so if you want to break out in a song that's okay as well I will no I Christina do not even tempt me I I swear love it Okay, so my first question is, we often talk about um, impacting a billion people on, well, and this, you know, Inspired for Impact is the name of the podcast. Uh, As part of our mission, we're out to impact a billion people. I have no doubt that you potentially have already done that because what you do gives to so many. And I know that you've got so many people in your boot camps, have listened to your podcasts and you're taken part in your masterclasses, read your books. And it's not only the person that you are directly influencing, it's all those people around them that you're influencing as well. Um, how, did you, how did you start? What was it that gave you the impetus? And how many people do you, do you feel that you've influenced? Well, I haven't looked at my website stats for a long time, but I remember a couple of years ago, um, I'd seen that a million people had seen my website in over a year, you know, and some people's websites would have millions each month. But I remember thinking, that's a lot of people, you know, and and sometimes even when I hear people go, oh, I only have, you know, 300 people on my newsletter list. I think if you had 300 people over to your house, that's a lot of people. Um, so I don't, I, I don't know that those stats, you know, off the top of my head today, but I am so grateful that we live in this time, you know, how lucky we are to be alive right now, first Hamilton reference, because there are so many of us who have a desire to make an impact, but we are now, we're living in a space where we have the technology to enable that. You know, I'm sure my, some of my ancestors would have liked to impact people and change the world, but they couldn't. And, you know, we both live in a fairly small city in Australia, but yet we can have this go out to people all around the world. That is magical. Um, So I think we can all make an impact and we're super lucky to be living in this time. I love that you've already got that Hamilton Hamilton impact influence. Make a list, how many we can put in. Yeah, but, it, but it's actually, it's so true. And the, the ripple effect of all those people, each and every one of those people um, that you affect. Chill and Prosper, um, great book. Thank you. Uh, it, it, you know, it's been an absolute pleasure going through um, the pre-read, the, the pre-release of that. I love the way that you've actually separated it into four sections. You've got mindset, business models, um, money and marketing. You are a money mentor, so can we start by 
what was it that alerted you to the fears around money that many people have that that act as a blocker to what potentially could be great success? Well, I've always been um, a very curious person and I like to see the connections between things. So I started out really as a personal development junkie myself. Um, I loved going to conferences, reading books, um, but I didn't think, I thought that was separate to money. I thought it was clean, like, you know, this is the the world of either spirituality or personal growth or whatever, but money is this dirty thing over there. So I've been on a massive exploration in my life to understand my behavior and my thought processes. And then when I started coaching, I realized that a lot of my clients had similar issues where it wasn't about their lack of strategy or even their confidence so much. It was so much stuff and old stories about money. Some of them are collective. Some of them were very personal to their experiences growing up. So I think it was just a natural progression for me of going, um, I'm exploring this. Tell me your story, you know, and then let's let's work out these connections together. And I'm 10 years full-time into it of my money boot camp. And I still love hearing people's stories because we all we are so complex, but most of us have made a decision about money at a very early age that's that really stops us from being able to charge people, from being able to receive money for doing something that we love. Um, and so, yeah, total natural progression for me. I've always been someone who explores something, shares it with others without having to give myself pressure of being a financial guru or anything like that. And that's why I call myself a money mindset mentor. It's like, I'm not an expert. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm someone who can help and pose questions for people to make that shift themselves. I think that's what I enjoy the most about listening to you, reading your books, et cetera, is that um, it, it's that whole total sharing and giving. Uh, you really do have this abundance mindset where you don't hold on to anything. Everything is, is out there. Um, can I ask you, what's your definition of an entrepreneur? Because we, you know, there's so many different ideas going around about an entrepreneur is and how they're different maybe to an innovator and you know, all, all that kind of, what, what do you consider to be the definition of an entrepreneur? Well, it's a good question. I mean, I think it is so personal. It used to mean someone who made something to sell. Like that was really, again, the only opportunity that people had to start their own business was they had to manufacture something. They had to make something. They had to invent something almost. And now where we've, again, have that technology that we can, we can be idea entrepreneurs. We can be um, service entrepreneurs. We can be knowledge entrepreneurs. There's so many different ways to do it. Um, but I mean, in the book, I talk about being a chillpreneur and a chillpreneur is someone who finds the path of least resistance so they can help people make money, but not do things the hard way. And I think that's been the problem for a lot of people is they come into business and they go, well, that's how I have to do it. Or they buy a course. That's how I have to do it. And we get stuck because we're all different and it different things feel good to different people. And it's definitely an exploration though. I think it's that entrepreneurial spirit of try it and see, you know, and I, I looked up to Richard Branson. He was my first entrepreneurial celebrity, I guess, mentor, because I, he was just like, screw it, let's do it. You know, that's what he always says because it's just that experimentation and that persistence. And that was me. I was, I was like, I'll find it somehow. I'll find my thing but I'm not going to give up. I love your whole, so that, that kind of leads us nicely into mindset, which is the first part, part of the book. Um, it's, it's that idea of, well, I'm allowed to be rich too um, concept that does come through. So can you just walk us through some of the, the major lessons or the, the major takeouts from the mindset? Um, and what I really love about the book too is it's full of case studies. So it's full of, you know, everyday people that have, that have taken the chance. And um, I love the way that you've incorporated that so that it really embeds the whole book in, in reality. But let's go through mindset a little bit and that whole idea of, well, you know, you mentioned earlier about the money being that potentially that dirty thing that sits over there in the corner. Um, I'm allowed to be rich too. Honestly, this is really one of the biggest mindset lessons I think that we have to learn. You know, 
whatever you want to do, because we all have imposter syndrome. Let's face it. It's such a, 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 such a pain point for so many people. So I recommend doing this mirror exercise, which I've been teaching my money bootcamp for years, you know, find a mirror and say, this is what wealth looks like and make it personal to you. You know, this is what a wealthy woman looks like. This is what a wealthy queer person looks like. This is what a wealthy mother looks like. And what you want to pay attention to is what comes up to contradict that. Because often people teach affirmations as this just like fake it till you make it thing. And the way that I teach affirmations is that they're a tool to uncover your beliefs, your real true beliefs. And what I think is interesting is the qualifiers that we each have for our own success. And so if you say, this is what a wealthy woman looks like, or this is what a wealthy author looks like, just listen, because some of those voices might go, yeah, but you're too young or old. Yeah, but if you lost weight, or yeah, if your accent was different, or, and what's hilarious is when you really start to go there, you might have a story that has got nothing to do with money. And I've heard things like, I can't be rich because I've got curly hair. I can't be rich because I'm too short. I can't be rich because I come from this particular town and no one else has done it. And there'll be layers to those things, right? Some of them will be, you know what? This is how the world has taught you. This is what the world has taught you about your worth and your deservability. And some of them are things that your family might've taught you about who gets to succeed, what professions get to succeed, who in your family gets to succeed first. And then you'll just have some real random ones that you have to explore as well. The, the cool thing about this exercise is you have to do it when you're feeling good and when you're not feeling good. And it's actually better to do it when, you're, when you look not great because then you can just go, wow, I am allowed to be wealthy as I am. And if we look at it from a gender point of view, you look at the top 100 wealthy men in the world, they can be all different ages, heights, weights, attractive, like, you know, attractiveness, they can be whatever they want to be. But I find a lot for women um, and, you know, even go into minorities in that they feel like they have to look a certain way, sound a certain way, be a certain way to be deserving of wealth. Um, and th that's why that exercise is so important because you have to see it for yourself first. And then of course you can follow mentors and, and acclimatize your brain to someone looking like you or being like you who can be wealthy but it starts with the mirror work it really does and it will, it will shift your brain of what's possible and I would love Christina I would love to hear from you because we all have those little excuses those little things what's something that you have thought in your I can't be wealthy or I can't be successful because and I want to hear your most random one please so it's actually as I was growing up um ethnic background uh, you know, um, my dad was born here, but my grandfather came from a tiny Greek island in Greece. For me, it was always hard work, hard work, hard work, hard work. And if you don't do that hard work, um, then that's then you can't be successful and you can't be wealthy. So I've also got all these perfectionist ideals. So for me, it was um, the hard work plus it needs to be perfect plus what does perfectly hard work mean so I've I had all these kind of issues uh and I've got to say that that reading and listening to you speak a lot has has helped release that so yeah that that'd be my two kind of had this collision <laughs> you know you've got a hard work and everything's got to be perfect but then what's the perfect definition of hard work was one that I really struggled with and this is the perfect example of where we live in a time where we don't have to rely on our physical labor to be able to make money, but our brains haven't caught up with that because it's so new. And it almost feels inappropriate to make money from things that you don't have to really labor for, you know, especially now that we can sell things that we've already done, you know, you can make royalties from a book or an e-course and, but it breaks that hard work for a hard day's pay paradigm because especially if you grew up in a completely analog way and now we live in this digital space that can magnify our time and effort it we just haven't caught up with that yet it feels wrong it feels inappropriate especially if you 
saw family members work really hard. And I mean, I, I love that you said about the, um, the Greek heritage, because one of the things that I'm exploring now is bringing together different groups and saying, tell me your commonalities. You might be from completely different cultures or different worlds, but let's, let's bring together something. And so I'll give you an example because I haven't done a Greek roundtable yet, but I will, I promise. I got together a bunch of English people. And of course, no one's, no one culture is a monolith, right? But I was saying, let's look at the values that are considered typically English. And one of them is politeness and queuing, waiting your turn. And so we looked at, okay, how is this showing up for your money? And there's something there about when you're an entrepreneur, you have to back yourself, right? You don't have to follow the rules, but there's still something there about, oh, I have to wait my turn. I have to be chosen. And so for one person that could be, well, I have to wait my turn and I can't be successful until my older brother's successful because that's the proper order of things. Or um, I have to wait for someone else to invite me because it would be impolite or American to put myself forward for things. So it's just really funny exploring some of those stories that we grew up with because there's always commonalities um, and differences. And, you know, and sometimes the, the exploration is what was the contrast for you? You know, because there could, I mean, there's an Australian culture, right? If we were to talk about mateship as an Australian value, I see a lot of Australians, they, they find it hard to charge people because it's mates rates, you know, and yeah, I can't charge your friends. And when I explored that myself, I was like, oh, I was considering the whole continent of Australia to be my mates. And then I was extending it to New Zealand. Oh, I can't charge people from New Zealand. And then I was like, well, we're British people, we're practically cousins, so I can't charge them. And it was just expanding this egalitarian mateship out further and further. Um, and this is the fun exploration, right? Really looking at those things of where am I not allowed to be successful? Where, am I, where are my stories and how can I reframe them? I've actually got the perfect um, example of that, what you Good. just said. So I, I spent two weeks in England uh, before going to Greece, um, you know, some years ago. And it was very much that uh, it was almost synchronous. It was synchronous that you mentioned the queuing because I was very much aware of queuing for everything, queue, queue, queue for the, you know, for the, for the food, for the bus, for the everything else, for the subway, for everything. And then I went to Greece where it was absolute chaos. And I went to the, up to the Acropolis and there were, two two door two entrances like two passageways and I'm thinking in my head entrance exit entrance exit not in Greece there were people trying to get in and out of both doors and the security guards were going push push so it's very um very appropriate that you mentioned the queuing because I had that that was one of the standout things for me um around that experience so it'd be very interesting to to be a fly on the wall at your Greek round table um wouldn't it be funny well and one other thing on that too the politeness thing comes up in a lot of cultures and if you've been hearing your whole life even talking about money or asking for money is impolite of course you're going to have problems invoicing your clients or chasing people up for payments or even setting prices in the first place because it's so impolite it's just so ingrained all of those things yeah I think so let's stick with mindset um just for a little bit longer um what's the most what's the most common mindset you find coming in uh that that you almost go okay look this has just got to be part of money mindset 101 because it's such a constant thing that you're observing across nationalities races cultures etc you have to work hard for money it, it's what we've already spoken about it, it honestly is the number one thing and I think we've all got different, our own unique relationship with that, right? So it depends on how you grew up. So, you know, if you grew up with a family who had to work three jobs to survive, then you're going to, you're going to think like, well, it's not appropriate for me just to make money from doing something I love. That's really bad. But on the other side of that, you know, if you're, if you had very ambitious family members who had to bill a hundred hours a week, you know, then you might also feel guilty about not working hard. Um, I had to deal with that in my first year. My mum was working in a nursing home and I remember saying to her, oh my God, someone's going to pay me $500 to speak at um, an event. And it was like a, a government away day, you know, as a consultant. And I remember just being so excited and she went, 
that's my weekly pay at the nursing home. And I, I felt like throwing up. I, I just thought, oh my God, that's so inappropriate that I can make money from just talk, talking, you know, um, that's so inappropriate. And I had to then even go through that with when I was writing books to think, I just get paid for like writing words down on paper. Like that's not fair. And I think if you've got a really big heart, that can be really hard as well to think, well, I'm not working hard. There are other people who work harder than me. Yes. Um, same with it, with the opportunities that we have to create passive income through e-courses or audios or books. It just doesn't feel like we've worked for it. And my first year of business, um, I, I created an ebook for ten dollars. And every time someone bought it, I felt like I should call them up and read it to them over the phone because it felt weird to be paid for something that I had already made. It just broke that work hard, you know, another day, another dollar thing that I heard growing up. Um, It also manifests in different ways for entrepreneurs. They can reinvent the wheel. They can refuse to delegate and get help because then it doesn't feel like they're working and it becomes kind of this self-fulfilling thing that then we pile things on and, and make things harder than they need to be to feel deserving of it. So I think everyone's got to really examine that work hard for themselves and see how they can reframe it. You know, it could be that you heard you don't get something for nothing growing up. Um, and I even watch how I talk about it with my kids. I'll say to them, if you have a dream and you're persistent, you can achieve anything. Because the truth is, some people get successful and they don't particularly work hard. You know, they've got a dream, they're in the right place, whatever. And we know a lot of people who work hard and never make tr- get traction either. You know, and if it was fair in the world, nurses and t- school teachers would be being paid millions of dollars. So we have to break break that and remake it for ourselves. Money is just money. You know, you can you can make money doing good things or you can make money doing bad things. But working hard is the wrong message I think that we we need to break for ourselves. And I think there's also that guilt if you really love what you're doing then that's not working hard and therefore how can I get paid? So I think I think that's part of that whole mindset. And you go through all of that beautifully um in 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 the chapters on mindset in the book. I'd like to move because there was a bit of a segue there into the business models. Um, and I love the quote, you quoted Marilyn Monroe, if I'd observed all the rules, I'd never have gotten anywhere. Uh, and it's that it's that expectation of there is a perfect formula, you know, and I, and I also believe that where the perception of our education, our geography, our socioeconomic, et cetera, and no two people have the same thing on the, on the whole entire planet. So it's that perception of as we've discussed what hard work is and everything else how important do you think a business model um, is to have that success and then how personalized do you think each entrepreneur's business model needs to be oh I think it's crucial and also I think we have to give ourselves permission to change it over time because if it doesn't work, it's okay to shift it. And by business model, I just, I'm talking about how you deliver what you do because nowadays there are so many ways that you can do it. And I'll give you one example from a profession. Um, say someone does tarot readings, you know, like intuitive readings. Um, you can do it face-to-face. You can do it in group settings. You can do it online. You can do it on Skype. And I put this example in the book. I had a tarot reading Um, slash astrology reading with somebody and it was over Skype chat we were typing to each other and I got off and I just went that was one of the best ones I've ever had because it worked perfectly for both me and her we both typed very fast we're both obviously great you know thinkers but it wouldn't work for somebody who needs to see someone and look in their eyes face to face it worked for me and she was you know honest about how she delivered it and but it changed something in me because I thought oh, are you allowed to just do business how you want to do business? Like it really just went, oh, there really is lots of ways. And that's why it's it's cool. Like post-pandemic, there are professions that never thought they could be online and they're online now. Um, and so I think it's important to, to always um, design your business for yourself first. And this is where the mindset piece comes in again, because it's, 
it goes against the grain of being helpful. The customer's always right. Um, you get what you're given. You don't get to choose. It's more blessed to give than receive. And so that's why people then go, oh, no, but my customer wants it this way. Instead of going, yeah, but that's going to feel really hard for you. And that's where I see people quit. They get burnt out. They give up because they've, they would rather throw out a whole business than learn to set a boundary or to believe that they're allowed to design it for themselves. So there's, you can do anything any way you want. You really can, but you have to give yourself permission to do it. I love that you brought up boundaries then because that, that is something um, boundaries are hard or people have a perception that boundaries are hard to set. Uh, how have you managed to set boundaries um, for yourself within business? Because let's face it, you've got three children and two dogs and, you know, life is complicated with three children and a partner and two dogs, uh, especially as, as young as yours are at the moment. So how do you set, how did you go about and again, boundaries are another personal thing. How did you go about setting your own boundaries? Mine have always come when something's been really painful and too painful to ignore. And I think that's um, where I do see people quit instead of going, hang on, this is painful. I'm, I can change this. So, you know, early on when I, I started doing coaching in my first year, my coaching sessions would go for three hours. You know, I would never feel like it was enough at my events and I'd have to give, you know, gifts and things and I wouldn't make enough profit because I was just trying to be too generous to people. And, but I, I think too, I realized that it's, it's not always generous to not have boundaries. And I learned this from my friend, Randy Buckley. She's got a business called um, Boundaries for Kind People. And I remember I resisted doing the course for a long time because I thought, no, 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 I'm not kind if I set boundaries. It was so ingrained in me to, to say like, oh, no, I have to be so kind and welcoming. And um, what she really taught me too is that how much safer people feel when they know what the rules are. And it really made me see that I feel that too. I want to know how long are we going for? How much is it going to cost me? What's the process? And I want someone to hold that space so I don't have to be vigilant and do it. So then I made little shifts and changes of saying to my clients at the start of our meeting, hey, we've got an hour together today. Don't worry about it. I'll keep an eye on the time. Okay, we're at, we're at 15 minutes now. Let's move on to the next topic so I can make sure we do it. You know, oh, okay, we're at the halfway point now. And I realized that that wasn't being mean. That was actually being really kind and hold being like the grown-up and holding the space and so Randy really helped me reframe a lot of those things I still struggle with boundaries for sure but I think you just have to it's a constant dance in a process right of what's painful what's not working and how can I make it better next time but we think if we've put something in place we have to live with it you know make your bed and you, you have to line it now Instead of going, well, you know what? I'm just going to make sure that that's in there for the next client. I'm going to learn from that. Um, but I'm not going to say, you know, I'm perfect at boundaries. But one thing I did put in the book was just a couple of scripts for having some awkward money conversations. Not because, you know, anyone has to follow them word for word. It's just sometimes we don't have the words to say to someone, hey, just to let you know, this is how it's going to be. And it can be just as kind and nice as that. <laughs> I love that. And I think it's Brene Brown that says to be clear is to be kind. Um, so that clarity and that understanding that people have up front is, is very important. Um, so because it's all related and we're not just going to keep everything separate, but the, the third section of the book is about money. And I particularly love the quote um, where you said, if you, if you think, or sorry, you quoted Paul Nell read a day. Um, if you think it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, I can't remember what the word was, to have prof a professional, if you think it's expensive to have a professional do the job, wait until you find out how expensive it's going to be to get an amateur. Um, yes. And I think that that's crucial because I think we often forget that when we set our prices and, and set expectations that people aren't just paying us for that section of their lives or our lives, they're paying you for all the experience that you've had. Um, so I, I love that whole flow through and, and the case studies that you use. So can you just expand on 
that a little bit and how that has played out in your life? Well, if I remember too, the guy who wrote that quote um, was a firefighter, you know, and I mean, and that's a perfect example. I actually woke up the other morning, there was a car on fire in our street, you know, and it's things like that, that we, we take for granted, you know, having a professional firefighting team, not only have the expertise, but they have the equipment to put out a fire, you know? And so I think it's, um, What's really interesting about pricing is, again, we put morality around it. And I see people go, I just want to be affordable for people. And the tricky thing is, well, that's a, it's meaningless. You know, what is affordability? And what I've even seen is people who are very kind-hearted, people who are very generous to their community, and they finally get the courage to say, hey, guys, I've just put together, like, my first paid offering. And their audience turns on them and says, oh, you're just in it for money and how dare you charge anything? I've seen it so many times. And so even if you were offering something for a dollar, there'll always be someone who complains that it's not free. So what are we to do then? If there's no critic proof price, what are we to do? We, we really have to find that energetic win-win pricing. And this is where it does feel like it's a little bit woo-woo because we think that other people must have set their prices using some sort of a logical formula. And it's not true. <laughs> Most people have just made up their prices or they've looked around what everyone else is charging and they average it out. And we all know that everyone has money blocks. So pricing is just this made up thing. Look at the art world. What differenti differentiates something from a $50 million painting versus a you know, something that you find in whatever, in just a normal art gallery. Sometimes it is skill and talent, but sometimes it's just perception, marketing, rarity, you know, completely random things. So we know that pricing is perception. And so the only thing we can do is find those win-win price points for ourselves. And one of the ways that you can discover that for yourself is when you get off um, the phone with a client, when you finish a project with a client, when you end a relationship, how do you feel in your body? Because if it's not win-win, you will feel a deficit somewhere. Um, I went and spoke in an event. Um, I you know, did it basically for free for someone. It wasn't even my target audience, all of those things. I got in the taxi and I was in physical pain. I felt so tired and, and um, depleted. And that was the time I went, that's my last time doing it. Even for friends, I'm going to charge them appropriately because I came and I gave all this knowledge and wisdom and inspiration and I got nothing in return you know, well, it wasn't equal. And so I had to feel that deficit. Sometimes when it's the other way, this isn't just saying, oh, charge people appropriately. I've had experiences where I've worked with someone as the customer and they've undercharged and I felt the deficit for them. I felt extra obligated and guilty because it wasn't, it wasn't energetically aligned. So again, how do you come up with a price? You, you pick one. You get a client, you see how it feels, and then you're allowed to change it anytime. Um, and I think people find that advice hard to hear because we just want someone to tell us what's the perfect price and what's the, pri what's the critic proof price that no one will ever say no to. It's not, doesn't exist. You've reminded me of a, of a case study where I was actually coaching a, a client who was in communication and they were severely undercharging. They couldn't, they were charging something like $25 an hour for years of expertise in comms writing uh, and they couldn't make ends meet and they were totally burnt out, which meant that their work was not the quality that it should have been. But once we tried to increase that price, um, people dropped off because the expectation had been set at a particular price and they wouldn't move up. We ended up having to shut the business down and restart um, under a new name and everything. So it's very, I think it is, as you say, it's important to, to really consider what that is up front and that you are paying for all this expertise. And I, I, I love the way that you, um, a, a lot of this is, so let's go, this is kind of like mindset um, and based on what you just said, but it's that, it's, it's almost that gut feel or it is that gut feel that, Again, if we go back to a lot of the mindset and what stops you doing things, people have unlearnt, been un or, or been challenged to 
take the gut feel out of things. I think we're entering an era now where it's becoming more acceptable and we're, and we're saying use it. Um, so can you just expand it? Because that's all part of that mindset. It's part of the manifestation, affirmation, and what feels right. Exactly. And it's, I think what we've got to realise that win-win relationship doesn't mean for everybody, as in any single person who desires to work with you in the whole world, it's, it can't be win-win because that's you with so many tentacles outside. It's win-win for your ideal client. And that's where it starts to get into that mindset piece of it feels exclusionary to go, you know what, here would be the perfect um, audience for this, or this would be the perfect person because it would feel win-win for them to pay it. And that's a real mindset shift. So one thing that I, I think helps us to see, see this is a business that is in every culture in the world for centuries is a beauty salon, you know, Every culture has always had some form of beauty salon. But if you think of any town, any modern town now, there is a beauty salon for every single price point. There is the, you know, well, let's look at hair salons. There is the buzz cut, get in and they, they go and you're done. And then there are the full experience ones where it's the champagne and the beautiful things and it's, you know, like it's all the stuff that you're not, it's not got nothing to do with your hair, but it's part of the experience that some people want to pay for. And you can't force that customer to go and get a buzz cut. And you can't force the customer who has a buzz cut to go and pay for those experiences that they don't value. Me, myself, I would be in the middle. I would love to go to a salon where they have really good Wi-Fi and they do all of my beauty treatments, like treat me like a race car. I go in and they go and they do it and I'm out. I don't care about the experience. It's not relaxing to me. Um, I take my laptop and work. But that's a really good example because everyone understands what where they sit in that, right? What they're willing to pay for. And sometimes um, we're trying to, again, we're trying to force all of it into one go. And imagine a kid-friendly hair salon and someone who needs that champagne and relaxing, trying to mesh that together. You know, so you've got these chandeliers and then in the corner, you've got the Ikea kids kitchen full of moldy toys and stuff like that. It just doesn't work. But, but we often try and do that with our own businesses to try and, you know, do it for everybody. And the thing is around that too, is we feel guilty as if, if, if I'm not affordable to everybody, what are they going to do? And I see this in industries where there are thousands of other people in that industry. And a good example of this is um, naturopaths. I have coached so many naturopaths and they say, but if my clients can't afford me, that's it. And I go, there's always, there are always people who are undercharge. There are always people who are new in the industry who need to do their apprenticeship like you did 20 years ago. And there is a price point for everything. It's, it's rare that I see a business that is so rare that they have to work with everyone. But you brought up a really good point though, that lady who was undercharging at $25. When you charge win-win pricing for what you do, you buy back energy so then you can write a book. You can create a podcast. You can write free articles. And then you can give to those people who can't afford you yet or they can't afford to work with you one-to-one. -one, you can help them in a lower-cost way, but it's really hard to do that when you are burning yourself out and you have nothing left to give. And that's the flip I need people to make when they're, you know, very, very selfless, heart-centered people. I say, look, this is going to allow you to help so many more people from your overflow, not from your life force energy. And that means you can do this for decades to come, not burn yourself out. I love that. So it's the, it's the mindset, it's finding the niche um, and then it's letting people know that you're there. So let's move into part four of the book, which is about marketing. I think the the line that I enjoyed the most, um, it was not everyone is going to buy. Uh, so actually having that embedded in, in what your expectations are. And also I remember reading somewhere you were, you were talking about, um, and it may have been in one of the other books, and uh, it, but it was about 
you know, the, the newsletter and people work hard to, and I know that you started the newsletter writing for thousands of people, even though you were only getting, you know, you're getting minimal numbers, but then it grew into what your expectation was. So it was that manifestation, but it was the, the unsubscribes. Uh, and I had never thought about it in the same way as you had proposed it. Like, it's okay to have X amount of unsubscribes because you're not actually thinking about all the additional people that are subscribing to the newsletter. So it's that whole marketing, um, if you can expand on those concepts just a little bit, but not everyone is going to buy because you're not going to suit everyone. And I think that's a, a crucial lesson for people to understand. And it's not even that you're not going to suit everyone. It's just some people, it's the timing's not right. You know, and I see this a lot where people take it so personally and you think, but that's why you do it again. And that's why you do it again, because it wasn't the right time for them or they didn't see it or people are busy, but we take it so personally, any kind of rejection. And I know it's, it's very hard, but you can do things like not get notifications every time someone unsubscribes. You don't need to see that. Um, you don't need to stress about people asking for refunds because it will happen at some point. Um, and so once you know those numbers, you can play around with them. You know, I've, um, I've been in business for quite a while now, so I, I can predict. I know how many people will open my newsletter. I know how many people will click through because you can't really beat those statistics, but it's not the same people every time. That's why you have to do another one and another one, and another one, because you don't just send out one newsletter and that's it. You don't just do one social media message and that's it. You have to be again, kind and let people know because people are busy. They forget, um, you know, people like me, I have ADHD. So I need to see a message several times. I also need to have people follow up because I forget. And so we've heard that um, phrase, the fortune is in the follow-up. Sometimes it's not because they don't like it. They've literally forgotten and they just need a little nudge. Sometimes I do it almost deliberately to go, I wonder if they're going to follow up. You know, I've, or, and I'll get on the phone with somebody for a sales call as a customer. I'm the one who has to say, okay, can I buy from you now, please? Um, because I think we're just so scared to ask and get any kind of rejection from people. But it's, you don't have to love it, but it is inevitable and it isn't personal. It's the trickiest thing I know for people. I think the lesson for me, what you just said is everything's possible. Everything is acceptable. The less expectations you go into something with, it's almost like the most, the more open and vulnerable you're going into a situation with and it's there if it's a win-win situation somebody will come to you and if, it, if it's not um then then that's that's perfectly okay maybe not this time maybe next time how does that play out in your marketing because I know you do a lot of a lot of work around helping people launch whether that's a business or an e-platform or a book whatever that that looks like um, part of that marketing journey you outline in in your launch procedure uh, which seems to work really well um, for the way you do it. But, you know, that, that's all part of a process as well, isn't it? It is. And I, I really think you have to also do it for the joy of it, you know. And so if you're not feeling joyful in, in the work, then it might be time to shift. And so my first um, group coaching launch was in 2009. So what's that, 13 years ago. I had one person join that and I could have, considered that to be a failure because I see people do this all the time but I was so excited I was like someone has paid me to coach them are you serious I can't believe I get to do this and the thing is I didn't have that business for very long because it wasn't the right business I lost interest in it but no one can ever take that knowledge away from you the first time you do something like that god it's a lot of work writing, you know, the sales page and the payment links and you'll have tech problems and all of those things will happen. It's inevitable. So I always say to people, the first launch is not about the money. The first launch is planting a seed of like persistence, you know, and I just went, oh my God, I can't, this was so, I'm so lucky that I got to do this. And, um, I've seen people recently who said, oh, I only got four people on my first launch. I'm just going to refund them all. 
and not do it. And I'm like, are you crazy? Like the amount of work that you've come to do this, you'll have forever. You know, and I, um, a couple of years after that first one, I did a manifesting course that had five people on it. The next year, I created my Lucky Rich Money Bootcamp. That's what it was called back then. My Money Bootcamp in 2012. I've had eight and a half thousand people go through that. That first launch was 22 people. And so, but I learned so much every time because it's so much, it's so much work, right? So the next time you do it, it's a little bit less work. The next time you do it, I would say the first one is 100% just to get over your resistance. And you have no idea what where that's going to go. It's never, ever wasted. So we have to almost be delusional in flipping around some of those things and give ourselves pats on the back for even the smallest thing, right? Because you're not a failure. It's literally, and you know, eight and a half thousand people that's gone through that program, multi-million dollar program. It's that planting that seed I did in 2009 when I had no idea what I was doing and I got one person. And I did it again and then again and then again. I love that also because you will then influence that one person that was in that group who will go and tell 10 people. And even if we go by your 1% rule, because you talk about the 1% rule, uh, the 1% sign up rule as well in the marketing section of the book, that, that, you know, if you get one more person and then one more person and one more, that, you know, rises exponentially. Um, and you start finding people that have got that abundance mindset that come to you. Uh, so I, I love the way that you that you still did that and it is all this learning and it's part of that community building and, and the learning, the constant learning um, that you go through. What's your best tip? So I'm, I'm actually going to, as we as we close the podcast, which we're not closing yet, um, I'm going to ask you for, for three um, steps that people can take right here, right now. Uh, but what, what's your best marketing tip for all these people that are going, oh, but I don't have a product. It's oh, so good. Oh, if you don't have something to sell, sell an hour of your time. There will be someone out there who will love to spend an hour with you, you know, and, and that's how I started. I was just basically, I'd write an article. Here's how to do a dream board. If you want me to help you with a dream board, click into my calendar. Um, so when in doubt, definitely sell an hour of your time. And then you'll start to hear what people want. And then you could create an e-course or, you know, make then make your marketing more specific. I would say I have been the most imperfect marketer. I've never had a really good strategy except for the one that I share in the book, which is share what you know and make offers. That's it. Share freely. Do your tips. Do a newsletter. Share what you've learned. You don't have to be an expert to be helpful to someone. Just share honestly what you've known, what you, what you know, and then make an offer. Here's an hour of time with me. Buy my book. If you liked this, get a consult with me. It, that's the only marketing strategy I've ever, ever used. And it's, it seems to have worked pretty well. I still don't have a lot of complication in my business because I, I don't know, I, maybe it's my ADHD. I do kind of lose interest sometimes in the details, but I've always been consistent in just saying, Hey, here's what I know about money. Here's what I know about pricing. Hey, do you want my thing? And it's, yeah, I, I literally did the stats one time of this very imperfect audio that I did where I just went, hey, if you like this free audio, come and join my money boot camp. And I, I remember just thinking, oh God, I've got to delete that. That's so embarrassing. It needs to be sexy. It needs a funnel. It needs deadline things and flying things and stuff like that. And I did the stats and something like 20,000 people had listened to that very imperfect audio and 1% of them had joined money boot camp at $2,000 a pop because they just heard something and went, yeah, I am ready. And that's why you have to do it just again and again. Don't complicate it. If I was starting anything now at like a sales page, I would literally start with going, here's what you get. Like, as in, here's my thing in one sentence and a link to buy it. And then I'd add more stuff in. I'd literally publish it as that and then just go, okay, now I can add in FAQs and things. But people think they have to have all of that and be perfect first before they sell anything. And often you don't even know what you're going to sell. You know, you don't even know the questions. And trust me, if you were to launch something the first time, you don't want thousands of people your first time because you don't have the infrastructure to be able to support it. You would be so stressed building the plane as, as you fly it. So it's better to just go, I'm going to start now, even if just one person buys, because I'm going to learn so much. And then I have that asset 
that I can make better next time. So I think that's my best advice is just, just to start. It doesn't have to be imperfect. Just tell, tell people how you can help them and then tell people how you can help them. That's it. It kind of goes back to the very first statement you made about Branson, you know, screw it, just do it. Um, which, which is a perfect, a perfect example of, of a lot of the conversation um, that happens through the book uh, and, and the case studies. Like I said, the case studies are, are, are quite wonderful and they're, they're a great way to, to embed the lessons that you share in the book. You just mentioned a dollar figure. Uh, and I know that you're not shy at all in telling people what you earn. You have a very much open abundance mindset. Um, did it take you a while to get over the fear of sharing with people openly what your turnover was, what your tax was? You know, I love the fact that you say, hey, be grateful that you can pay tax because it means that you're contributing to the whole country and the, the whole infrastructure, et cetera. Was that, was that something that it took you a while to, to feel free enough to say? No, I've been doing that since my first year in business. Um, I think my first year, my first like calendar year, I made sixty thousand dollars. I did a um, a breakdown of it, and I did. I just continued to do it. I actually stopped doing it between like two and four million because I just thought it's not that relatable anymore. You know, I felt like people really liked it up to that. You know, kind of early days of the six figures, and then million dollars and I actually did another one last year at the end of the year because I thought oh no it is like this is part of it is just having that conversation and making it no big deal I don't think I'm better than anyone else or worse than anyone else I just want us to get to the point where we just go well money is just money that's it and that's why I publish my tax returns every year um, because I just go money is just money and that's okay but the tax thing is interesting because I realized in my first year um, how scared I was about dealing with the tax office. And I actually think that holds people back a lot at the start. I was more scared of paying a bid in tax than I was for, I mean, my tax bill last year was $700,000 um, that I had to, you know, that's, that's cash that I have to pay. But actually it was way more scary my first year because I, I had all those fears of I'm going to get into trouble. It was all mindset stuff. The tax man's going to get me. You know, because I grew up on welfare and we had this distrust of the government and, you know, stuff like that. So I, that was my journey. But I think collectively we have this fear of the tax man and everyone has their own personal relationship with that. So I think I just, the reason why I think I don't feel bad about it is because I, if someone says, well, you suck, I go, well, it is just what it is. Like, I'll make that money whether I tell you it or not. And I think I'm just one of, I'm just an oversharer. I'll tell people anything, <laughs> you know, I'm the sort of person if someone goes, oh, I like your thing, I'll go, oh, this is what I paid for it. I got it from a thrift store. This is the thing. Um, and I've always been like that ever since I was a kid, just a chronic oversharer. And so that helps me just to go, well, I'm going to make it anyway, whether I tell people or not. So why not tell someone and, and it can be helpful. I love that. And that's very yeah. much around your generosity um, and, and the service that you provide generously that way. So the book is highly recommended, um, Chill and Prosper. And I'd love to get you back to actually go through a few more of the case studies. Uh, but you just mentioned profit. We're entering an era where it's, it's really acceptable and especially almost um, obligatory for big business, especially to have their profit linked with purpose and and that whole um, am I doing something that I love am I aligned in purpose we know that if you don't actually even if you're a big business if you if you don't have a social bottom line you don't want to have that impact you don't have that that um, grace and gratitude to help your community um, that your business probably won't thrive can you just and you do talk a lot about um, about purpose and and why is it that you're doing what you're doing and what the win-win is can you just expand a little bit um, as we, as we bring the podcast to to a close this one I'd love to get you back and do another one um, yeah around yeah. what that purpose and, and profit combination is for you um, I really live by this quote that I heard Sarah Blakely say she says money is fun to make fun to spend and fun to give away and I think all three can be true because sometimes people think, oh, I should only do my business to be able to give to others. And I have to tell you, I've had so much fun making money. I've had heaps of fun spending it. I've, I, I love buying old cars from my farm and 
thrift store couches and making them over and ridiculous things like that. But it's also really fun to give money away. And so I was really grateful yesterday. Um, my friend, Melissa Histon started a charity called Got Your Back Sister, um, domestic violence charity, a, a cause very close to my heart because so much of domestic violence is tied up in financial inequality and, um, and unfairness around money. That's why so many victims can't leave. And so I was really happy yesterday to be able to donate $10,000 at her event. And, um, you know, that's the stuff that drives me is to, to say it's, it's okay to ha have fun making it, spending it and giving it away. And so for me, I, I, yeah, it's, it does drive me is, is wanting other people to have financial empowerment and to be able to make different choices because of money, not just to get out of bad situations, which is obviously very close to my heart, but to be able to do amazing things in the world. Because look at what some people have built um, out of greed, you know, and I just think, wow, think of all the different interests we have. I just invested in a musical recently because I, I'm passionate about the arts and it's super fun to be able to, to know that we all have different interests and we can all fund different things. On another point too, someone said to me um, today, will you ever go into politics? Because you were, you seemed very outspoken about politics. And I said, no, one, I don't have the um, temperament. I don't care about skeletons, you know, all that stuff, whatever. But it's more that I know that I'm not a, um, a consensus builder. You know, and so I said, I would prefer to use my money to be a queen maker and to lobby that way. And that's totally cool too. Um, so I'm, I, um, I hired a philanthropy coach a couple of years ago to go through those questions for myself and say, where do we want our money to go? What, what causes do we want to support? Not just for short-term change, but for long-term change too. Um, and yeah, money, money can just be a tool that, that we can use to change the world. And the more people I can get to understand that, the better. So, yeah, that's what drives me. I love that. Money can be a tool to change the world. Can you, before we go, everything has to have a bias to action. Otherwise, what's the point? And I know that's very much why you do the case studies, why you do the boot camps. You know, it's that push to action. If someone was, well, the people that are listening to this podcast now, what would be three steps that they could take right now to free up their money mindset. Let's start there because I think step one is the most crucial thing. So what would be three things that you've already, you've given us the mirror exercise, which is fantastic and I've used it at yeah. work everybody. Um, so what would be three things that people could action right now to start them on that journey? Yeah, I call it the OCP process. Okay, so it's origin story is the O. Um, C is connect the dots and, and P is pattern interrupter. So pick one memory from your childhood, anything that you can think of around money, anything. Step two, connect the dots. How is this showing up for you? Is it showing up in your invoicing, in your fear, imposter syndrome? Is it holding you back from setting a particular boundary? And then the P for pattern interrupt to be honest, it can be short or long-term. A short-term pattern interrupt might be that you just come up with an affirmation that every time you think that thought or every time you procrastinate doing that thing, you'll say the affirmation. Very short in the moment. Medium and long-term pattern interrupters, it's doing the work, doing the ongoing money mindset work. Um, and so that could be coming to join my money bootcamp, reading some of my books, but really having that mindset of exploration and curiosity to go and find and untangle your own money stories. So then it's not your default behavior. And also so you can stop it. You don't have to then continue it. You don't have to spread it on to your kids or to your, you know, other people you work with. So just think OCP, origin story, connect the dots, pattern interrupt. I love that. Thank you so much. I, I look forward to the next time we get to have um, a conversation. Would love to Definitely. actually delve deeper into some of those, those case studies. Um, Denise, thank you for joining us. Thank you for being part of the, of the podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your friends. We'll have all of Denise's contact details and oh, links yes. to her books. Yeah. I was going to say, I've got some really great pre-order bonuses. Um, if people go to denisedt.com slash prosper, 
as in chill and prosper. Um, I've, I'm adding new stuff all the time too. So definitely it's worth pre-ordering because then there's some cool pre-order stuff in a book club and things like that too, which will be really fun. And thanks for your support, Christina. I appreciate it so much. I actually think you're one of the first people I met um, in Newcastle when I moved to Newcastle, like very, very early on. So thank you. I, I was thrilled to see um, you come up in my calendar and yeah, I appreciate it a lot. Thank you. I very much appreciate you. And we we did share the, the stage at one of the Newcastle Writers Festival, which is another, another great event. Thank you for sharing yourself with us today. Uh, look forward to our next conversation. See you soon. Bye.